Let's pray and before we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you more than anything else in this world. We need you to come and to comfort our hearts, especially in this season. We need your grace to see your word clearly. We need your name to be magnified and exalted. We need our hearts to come around this last part of the Benedictus passage in Luke, and we need to see you. We need to see your worth, your beauty, your glory, and we need to see the salvation that you prepared for us, uh, especially in this season of our lives when there just feels like there's so much uncertainty and confusion and, and uh, fear even, Father God. We need you to speak clearly into our hearts, and so I, I, I ask you, Father God, come in and through this passage of Scripture and illuminate our hearts to the reality of who you are and the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We ask this in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and uh, turn with me to Luke 1, Luke 1 verse 68, which is where we've been for the last few weeks. And um, <clears throat> we've been looking at this passage in Luke 1 called the Benedictus. It's Zechariah's uh, Song of Praise. And uh, like I said earlier, after Easter, our plan is to go back to, to John 1, where we were, if you remember, we were in the middle of John the Baptist's ministry. He was an adult. Um, but we're going to go back again this week one more time and look at this prophetic song from Zechariah when John the Baptist was only eight days old. And uh, I think we're going to see this week a powerful connection between the song that, that Zechariah sung over his baby boy and the things that we saw in the book of John about who John was, that he came to bear witness to the light and the light of the world being Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is I want to read this song from front to back one more time this week, and I want to zero in on just the last few verses for today, and then next week we'll be off on uh, a trip, a journey to Easter in uh, the scriptures. So let's read this. Verse 68 of Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to, guard, to guide our feet into the way of peace. <clears throat> Excuse me. So for the first week, if you recall, we went and we looked at verses 68 and 70, uh, 68 through 73, and we, we looked at this prophecy that was being fulfilled of a Savior, the horn of salvation, who is this Savior who was promised for hundreds of years by the prophets, and he was going to be raised up by God to save his people. And the thing that they need salvation from throughout this song is really clear. It's their enemies constantly resurfaces throughout this song. And last week we ended up here. We looked at verses 74 and 75. And that depicts a time in the future 
where there would be no more enemies. And we, we talked about how the fact that, that that future streams back into the present and Christians live as though it's here. We live as though there's no more enemies. We are fearless because God has called us to be fearless. But we said in both week number one and week number two, we said that the greatest threat to God's people, the greatest enemy that God's people will ever face isn't a physical enemy. But it is rather the reality of their sin against God and the justice from God that is due it. That's the greatest threat, which is why Zechariah in verse 77 connects the salvation of God's people with the forgiveness of their sins. These two aren't separate events in Zechariah's mind. They are the same event. They're the same experience, the same reality. And the reason is because our sin is our greatest enemy. Think about it for a second. The the consequences of every other enemy you could conceive of, every other enemy that you could think of and imagine, and we don't, like in this season, we don't have to strain too hard to imagine an enemy that we want to be rid of. Any kind of enemy that you could conceive of, including that one, is ultimately infinitesimal in its severity next to the consequences of sin in the life of a human being. Infinitesimal. And the reason is because according to scriptures, the consequences for sin last for all eternity, which is several orders of magnitude greater than anything we could conceive of. And so Zechariah rightly asserts that this salvation, the salvation that God's people must experience, must happen in the forgiveness of their sins, which is what verse 77 says. But we're going to back up just one verse before that and start to look through the text from here. Verse 76. In this verse, Zechariah shifts gears. You'll notice that even though he's been singing this song over his son, this song hasn't really been about his son up to this point. It's been about this this horn of salvation, the one that his son would be sent to proclaim. But now in verse uh, 78, he begins to focus on his role in this drama, or verse 76 rather. He begins to focus of his son's role in this story. He says of his son in this verse, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins. And so imagine this, Zechariah is staring down at his son, John, and he shifts his focus from the horn of salvation, who we know is Jesus Christ. We know that's the Messiah, Jesus. He shifts his focus and now is looking at his son and says, you're going to be a prophet of the Most High God. You're going to be a prophet, which means that John is really the the last of the Old Testament prophets bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's part of a long line of prophets who, for the running centuries, were pointing to the consummation of all of God's promises in the coming of a Savior. And so Zechariah is is saying that his son is going to have this remarkable honor of being a prophet. It's an amazing gift of preparing the way for the Messiah to come. He's going before the, the Savior, and the way that he's going to prepare the way for the Savior Verse 77 says, is by giving the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. That's how he's going to do it. 
That's the central focus of John the Baptist's ministry. So hold on to that as we get back into the book of John and we look more at John the Baptist. That's what his focus was. He is, is there to show how God intends to save his people from their sins. For example, John 1.29 says, John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what he's doing there when he says that is verse 77. He is giving the knowledge of salvation by pointing to Jesus Christ. And when he says that the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, what he's saying is the glory, the worth, the beauty, the, the greatness of this being, Jesus Christ, is such that the sacrifice of his life is sufficient to pardon the sins of the entire world. That's amazing. That is amazing. And if it's not amazing, like if that doesn't hit us with the gravity that it should, it, it isn't because it's not amazing. It's probably because we may be completely out of touch with the eternal costliness of our own sin. Because this is amazing that one man could do this. And that's what he's saying. And this is the salvation that Zechariah's uh, song is promising. It's the one that that his song has in view. Every other salvation that we could conceive of or think about or imagine is insignificant by comparison to what he's talking about in verse 77. So everything in this song, everything in this song, everything in redemptive history hangs on verse 77. But the way that Zechariah chooses to end this song that he's singing over his son, the way he chooses to to bring it to an end is interesting because he's not zeroing in specifically on the cross (coughs) or doing anything with verse 77. He pulls back almost as if he's taking in all of human history from the very beginning of redemptive history to the very end. That's what it looks like he's doing. He engages the, the source of salvation and its ultimate goal. In these closing verses, he looks at the origin of God's saving act and its final and glorious culmination. And we see this in verse 78 first. We are granted forgiveness of sin through the horn of salvation. That's the whole beginning of the song which is Jesus Christ. Why is that the case? Verse 78 tells us, because of the tender mercy of God. That's why. That's the reason why we are granted salvation. The source of our forgiveness, the very reason why the cross happened is in this verse. It's right here in 78. The tender mercy of our God. That's why the cross happened. This is the ultimate reason. There isn't There isn't a reason before that chronologically. There isn't a reason more foundational than that. There isn't a reason more fundamental than what this verse says. This is the reason. The tender mercy of God. It's it. That's the source of our salvation. And the word tender here in the Greek is really interesting because it's actually a reference to the inner parts of a human being. It's splanknon in the Greek. Um, And what it means is... It's, 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 it speaks of this gut-level, visceral feeling of affection that exists like in the inner part, the heart of hearts, the inner part of the person. It, it talks about like the, the deep-seated emotions of that person, the affections in the inner man. And in Hebrew culture, in the Hellenistic, the Greek 
uh, portions of Hebrew culture, they would translate this word as tender. In the English is what we translate it as tender because it spoke to being moved to pity or moved to compassion. But what's amazing about what Zechariah is singing here in verse 78 is that this is the source of the salvation. There's nothing before this. It is, it begins with the tender mercy of God. There's nothing outside of God that constrains him or obligates him to offer us this salvation. There, there, is, there is nothing, God, God doesn't look at anything outside of himself in order to, to draw out of his heart this tender mercy. Though it is real and genuine love and though it is fixed on us, his people, it's not, and I need you to hear me on this, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we're worthy of it. In fact, the very reason we call it mercy is because we're not worthy of it. This act of love has, has nothing to do with our value, our worth, anything that we could give back God in return. This love originates entirely from God alone. That's what this verse is saying. There's nothing before this verse. At the center of God's heart for undeserving, unworthy sinners like us who are in desperate need of salvation from God, at the center of his heart is tender mercy. He loves us. But God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he loves us. There isn't anything before that. And, and if you think about it, this isn't how we operate as human beings. Like, we, we love people who we value. We love people who make us feel happiness and gladness. We love things that we enjoy. Um, but think about that. How could that be true about sinners in rebellion against you? Sinners come to God with one thing <laughs> that he owes them, and that's justice for living their lives in a way that, that have completely pushed him to the side as though he doesn't matter when in fact he ultimately is the only thing that matters. Period. And this is the state that we come to God in. And God looks on us absent of any reason to love us and yet he lays hold of our lives with the greatest and most costly love in the universe. This tender mercy that verse 78 is talking about. Romans 5.8 says it most clearly that God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us at our worst. That's what that verse is saying. While we were sinners. In full view of everything broken that you would ever do. Think, say. Everything evil in you and in me. God looked at us and loved us despite those things. It is amazingly freeing. I hope it is for you, because it is for me. <laughs> amazingly freeing to know that God's love for me isn't dependent on my ability, or my skill, or my ability to perform, or my wisdom. It's not dependent on that. It is entirely rooted on his own affections, his love. He loves me because he loves me. That's the source of our salvation. That's what Zechariah is pointing to in verse 78. But then he, he continues from the origin of our salvation, the heart of God, 
before all eternity to the culmination, the ultimate purpose and goal of our salvation, which is where he ends. Listen to verse 78 and 79. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So when John the Baptist gives the the knowledge of salvation, this is verse 77, when he gives the knowledge of salvation and the proclamation of Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God, when he does that, and people come to repentance and, and, and seek the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78 tells us what's happening there is kind of like a sunrise. It's like a sunrise breaking out over the horizon. The, the sun ascending upward into the sky, climbing high. And what was once filled with darkness is now being flooded with light. That's what this is like. The sunrise gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And if you... Remember back to John 1, this is familiar language to us, light and dark. Light and darkness is something that we looked at at the beginning of this year. Um, We saw that as a major theme in the book of John, and it's not just John. We see it here in Luke, in this song that Zechariah is singing. And, And if we were to move throughout the entire Bible, let me tell you, we would see light and dark language all over the place. And it's everywhere, always referencing the same things, the reality of light and the reality of darkness in this world. And so in this song, if light is the salvation that John is talking about in verse 77, then the darkness is to be devoid of salvation, absent of any salvation, which is why Zechariah uses the language he does. He calls it a shadow of death. That's the language he uses. It it is as if death has cast a shadow over all of humanity. All of humankind has this shadow hanging over them. And to be clear, this isn't just physical death he's talking about when he says shadow of death. This is far worse than simply physical death. Physical death is not the worst thing that could happen to a person. Remember, God promised Adam, the day that you take of the fruit in that day, you will die. If you take this fruit from this tree, I've forbidden you, you will die. And Adam did die that day. It was an immediate physical death. It was something far worse than that. He was severed from the life of God, which is much worse. It's like a dark cloud rolling over the sun and you can't see anything anymore. There was no sun anymore in his life. That's the reality of sin. And what we learn from Scripture is that all of us have inherited and perpetuated Adam's decision that day. We've inherited it, and we've perpetuated it with our own actions. We aren't simply victims of Adam's sin. We are that, but we're not simply that. We are also accomplices. And so you and I sit in darkness. Apart from the grace of God, we are sitting in the thickest darkness. Ephesians 4.18 refers to it as a darkened understanding. It's this moral framework of the fallen world that man has twisted so that God has been torn from the center of reality and thrown off to the side or completely removed. That's what this darkness is. That's what the shadow of death is. It's, It's not just captivity to frail mortal bodies. That's an effect 
of this darkness. That's not this darkness. It's not just bodies that will die one day. According to John 3, 19, and really the entire voice of Scripture, it is captivity to sin. That's what it is. That's what the shadow of death is. It's, it's so deadly to be sitting in there that it, is, it can be called eternally deadly to sit in this darkness. And that's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. It's just true. Because this darkness represents an eternal trajectory of every human being apart from the grace of God. What Jesus himself referred to as outer darkness. Outer darkness. And it lasts forever. And yet this passage says that in John's preaching, in his preaching of this salvation, when he holds out this salva- the knowledge of salvation through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, as he points to Jesus, it's like the sun is rising. That's what this song is saying. It's like this light is breaking out across the darkness, which should remind us, if you recall back in John, John 1.4, when it says, in him was life, talking about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 7, just a little ways below that, John, the, the author of the book of John, says that John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light. This light in Zechariah's song when he was just eight days old is what he's talking about. That's why John the Baptist was sent. That's why he came. And so what Zechariah is saying here profoundly in this song is that there is a light coming. Darkness isn't going to have the final word. There's a light coming, and that light is so powerful, so glorious, that the darkness is going to be utterly obliterated in the light. It's going to go away. And that this shadow of death is going to be completely erased for all of God's people. That's what Zechariah is saying here. This isn't just the eradication of a physical darkness. This is literally the overturning of our captivity to both sin and death. It is the reversal of everything that went wrong in the fall. All the broken things become unbroken with this light. And the way that Zechariah describes it at the end is true peace. He calls it the way of peace. Look at verse 79. This light is going to guide us, guide God's people into the way of peace. That's the ultimate goal of salvation, that reality right there. It is peace. The light is shining so that we, you and I, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, have peace. And this is more than just simply a peaceful life where we don't have to worry about hostility or all of these other things that we are concerned about, especially in this season with COVID-19. This is not just the, the removal of those things. When Zechariah talks about the way of peace, he's talking about a final and consummate, a, a, a full peace at the end of human history in the presence of the living God. It's not just the end of war. It's not even just the end of death. It is the dawn of a kind of eternal joy that will completely abolish Every single thing that has afflicted God's people, every disease, every pain, every tear, every sin, all of them will be gone forever. 
and it will be true and lasting peace. That's what Zechariah is saying in verse 79. That's what this light is leading to us to. It, he's, it, he's leading us to an experience of peace that you and I do not have language for. We can't even talk about it. We can barely talk about it with our language. That's the outcome of this salvation. And it only happens, it only happens because of what verse 77 secured, which is the cross. It only happens because of the cross. It may have begun in the heart of God, and it may be marching toward this great glorious day in the future where there will be final and complete peace, but that is only because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is only because of what happened to the horn of salvation at the beginning of this song. In order for there to be any forgiveness of sins, in order for there to be any, any forgiveness whatsoever, Jesus Christ had to come and he had to enter into the shadow of death, our shadow. And he had to let it completely consume him and swallow him up in order that God could promise us that one day he would take all of death and swallow it up and it would be gone forever. The cross had to happen. The peace in verse 79 does not happen without Jesus Christ dying on the cross in order to secure the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we close our time here in the Benedictus and as we transition into a journey to Easter, looking at the risen King, I want us to, to prepare for communion in, in our homes as we listen to this last song by reading the book of Isaiah, uh, reading specifically Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. Because I want, to, I want you to see, I want you to know that this day that I'm talking about, this final piece that Zechariah was singing about 2,000 years ago, is real. I want you to know that it's real. It's not a story. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something we just hope is going to happen. It is more real than anything you can imagine, and I want you to know it. And the only way that I can do that is by reading the words of Isaiah to you about this day. And it's, this day is for every single person who's embraced the light that John the Baptist proclaimed, Jesus Christ. Every single person who's received Jesus in faith. And so if you are, if you have received him, you are welcome to partake in communion in this last song. And I would ask that you would envision in your mind this day, this great hope the entire focus of the Benedictus is this hope that God has for his people. And as you receive the elements, recognize the cost. This day was not free. It cost God his own son. It cost Jesus his life. But it has been paid every single cent in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is ours. So listen to Isaiah talk about this day. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord 
has spoken. Every tear will be wiped away. Every reproach that you've suffered in your life or will suffer in the future will be removed. And death will be a word that we consider ancient history. It's gone. It's not anything we have to deal with anymore. And we need, we need to hear this. The church needs to hear this. Risen Hope, we need to hear this in this season. A season marked globally by so much loss. So much confusion. So much sadness and sorrow and worry. We need to hear this because this promise is for us. He says, for the Lord has spoken. God has guaranteed this for us. And the way we receive it is by receiving Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Let's trust him for this day. Heavenly Father, we love you. <clears throat> we love you. And in, in, this, <laughs> in this time, in this season, it is very hard for us. It's hard for us to feel the way we ought to about this passage in Isaiah. We feel so disconnected from a day when there's no death. We see, feel so disconnected from a day when reproach is, is absent from our life for all eternity. In the next few moments, Father God, no matter how far we are scattered away from each other, everyone who is, who's here with us in spirit, I pray right now, Father God, that you would compel our hearts supernaturally to believe Isaiah 25 that this is the way of peace, that this is the light that you've talked about in, in the song with Zechariah, and that it is coming for us because Jesus came and did what needed to be done, Father God. Help us as we receive communion to believe this, to hold fast to it, for it to, to have an influx of joy in our souls because we know your word is true. You promised this, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Help us hold tight to you as we move towards that day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.